Well, good afternoon, everybody. It is where I'm at. I, I hope you're having a great day. Uh, and uh, of course, any day when you're my age is a great day <laughs> when you see the sunshine and the green grass. Uh, today's subject is uh, going to be an interesting subject. I wrote the uh, article for IP Magazine, and I've gotten a lot of response, a lot of questions comes up, and it always comes up like, hey, I never even knew that was in there. And I said, well, you know what? I didn't either for years and years and years. One of my one of my famous quotes whenever I'm teaching somebody is, or instructing a class or something, I'll always ask people, what was the last time you read your safety book cover to cover or have you ever <laughs> and uh, i get some pretty interesting looks and then i follow it up how does your safety manual measure up against the osha regulation and i said when was the last time you read you know 1910 and especially there's three paragraphs when really is more than that but the three paragraphs that wind up being the focal point of lawsuits injuries the 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 responsibility, the accountability part of following those, it always shows up. Paragraph L, okay, that's minimum approach, PPE, arc flash. Paragraph M, switching and tagging, de-energizing for the protection of the employee. And paragraph N, which is grounding. Well, the grounding portion is the really interesting part. Uh, I know Jim Vaughn and I have more fun than the law allows at IP conferences or roundtable or panel discussions, and even presenting the classes. I know it's one of the system grounding is one of the most re, uh, requested topics that we teach. I know myself and a couple of other guys that work with me, you know, we're continually either doing distribution cover-up or doing system grounding. A lot of switching and tagging. I had a question called to me just a few minutes ago as I was Make, running an error and they're getting back to the office about switching and tagging, paragraph M. And, of course, that had to do also with working in a corridor where there was possible induced voltages. Totally different subject. Today I want to talk about N, grounding for the protection of the employee. That's what in the 269, 1910-269 standard. And if you want to look in 1926, it's in there too, but it's a different difference. Uh, different lettered uh, subject topic. But here's the interesting part. Uh, I'm going to kind of read you a little bit of this thing, not the whole thing, of course, but I want you to kind of get the gist of this. You know, paragraph N of this section, for grounding of generation, transmission, and distribution equipment for the purpose of protecting employees. Paragraph N4, later on, this is N1 I'm reading. Also applies to the grounding of equipment, other other equipment as required elsewhere in this section. And what they're talking about there is line trucks, bucket trucks, whatever. And that's paragraph P, which is a little bit later on. Now, there's a note to one in here. This paragraph covers this generation, transmission, distribution, lines, and equipment when the subject requires. That that'll get your attention. Protective grounding, or whenever the employer chooses to ground Ooh, now when i read that one i mean it was a long time ago of course but uh back when i was a, a you know a, in journeyman school and a lot when i finally made journeyman and then when we got out of line crews and i worked on line crews for years and years uh, and even on some transmission too and 
we ground it the way our supervisor of, of the of the uh, crew required us to ground. It was no questions asked. They never, I never read this. I mean, this didn't come along here until 1994, the first version of 269. They really didn't change hardly any of this. The only thing they did in 14 update is the employer shall uh, demonstrate or the employer shall, shall. They put the onus and the responsibility and accountability on the employer where it was implied to be on the employee prior to that. And that's another one of the interesting things. But when I read this note, now a note is not a regulation, okay? Just get that straight. They're not going to cite you on a note unless it's by reference in the in the regulation. But it says, when the employer chooses to ground such lines and equipment for the protection of the employee. I said, well, my God, I don't know. We, I never knew we had an option to ground or not to ground. And then all of a sudden, you know, the first the first uh, impulse is is when would it be uh, not practical to ground or not safer to ground? And you know, that, but your mind starts racing. You to figure out when, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me. And then, as time went on, I ran up on some examples and some accidents that I was asked to confer on and uh, give an opinion to them. You know, to opine on that basically was a demonstration of this. In uh, today was N one. Now N two says for the employee to work transmission distribution lines and equipment as de-energized, the employer shall ensure that the lines and equipment are de-energized under the provision of M that's switching and tagging, de-energizing for the protection of the employee, and shall ensure. Proper grounding of the lines and equipment specified in the next section, N3 all the way through 8. It depends on altitude correction factors and a bunch of things. However, oh boy, when you have, when you have those words, get ready. However, if the employer can demonstrate that the installation of a ground is impractical or the conditions resulting from the installation of a ground would present a greater hazard, to employees than working without grounds, the lines and equipment may be treated as de-energized and provided that the employer establishes all, all of the following conditions. And there's some protocols here we got to follow. And they are three things. They got to ensure that they're switched out, tagged out, check for their presence, absence of voltage, and grounded the way paragraph M says to. Also is, once it's grounded and maybe when the grounds come off, there was no possibility of contact with another energized source. And then lastly, N23I, the hazard of induced voltage is not present. Wow. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, I never knew that. And when I wrote the article, and I, I, th I guess when Jim Vaughn and I put on several presentations and we've actually you know presented this information people start scratching their head and say well when is that well the first time it really popped up on my radar screen was we would work at a hurricane one time and uh, in my grounding presentation I actually have a little CAD drawing and everything and kind of 
show the points of oscillation, the clearance points on transformer switches and cut jumper and pull meters to establish an equipotential zone, which is required in N3. Bearing in mind, always bear in mind, that the OSHA regulations never tell us how to do whatever we're doing because there's one regulation written for every kind of system that's out there. They tell us what we need to do and why we need to do it. And N3 says, listen carefully, temporary protective grounds shall be placed in such locations and arranged in such a manner that the employer can demonstrate will prevent each employee from being exposed to hazardous differences of electrical potential. Now, it don't tell you how many, where to put them, uh, what size, doesn't tell you anything. So it's all up to the employer then to read between the lines, do the engineering, and figure it out to where they know that, you know, if you got 25,000 amps of fault current as location, you know, you're going to need a, a two-hour ground. That, of course, your ground should hold a maximum fault current at that location for at least 15 cycles before they come apart if they fail. So, and that was really interesting. So you go back to N2 now, the employer ensures, that's those words they added in 14, uh, that the uh, lines and equipment are de-energized in the provisions of M, and there's no possibility with another energized source contacting or the chance of induced voltages. So that nothing can be around it. If it's in a corridor or if it's got a crossing or anything like that, then, you know, this might not be the case you need to use. What I'll try to do is I'll give you a, a couple examples here of, of when the grounds or, you know, that total isolation would be the better issue rather than being ground. And uh, the first one was an overhead that occurred on a hurricane that we were working. There was a very long single-phase tap that pulled off a three-phase line. It probably went 10 miles. Well, just somewhere down that thing, there was another little takeoff. It had about four or five transformers on it. You could see from the takeoff pole to the dead-end pole for the last transformer, you could see it. There was only... You know, uh, might have been eight, nine hundred feet, thousand feet. And so, uh, the first pole on that short takeoff was damaged during the storm and failed, broke the pole, burnt the primary down, blew the fuse on the long takeoff on the main three-phase line. And so they sent a troubleman out there, a serviceman, and they found the pole were down. So he cut the jumper on that short four or five-span takeoff and grounded it okay just put a ground on it put a whole tag on it cut that jumper folded it back went back to his line fuse on the three-phase pole on that long tag off made it back hot so everybody was hot except the four or five transformers that was on that short takeoff well a little while later a crew got out there with a 40-foot pole and a 25 kvpa transformer and they got up there and said okay it's it's a cut jumper. It's got a hole tag on it. It's got a ground right here. I'm going to open all the other cutouts just to get clearance points. And I'm going to pull the pole that was down. I actually had a one-off triplex going across the street to a service pole and had two services on it. So they pulled those two meters 
opened all the other cutouts up, three or four other transformers that went to work. They set the pole and picked up the primary neutral, tied it back in, put the equipment arm up there, switched the arrestor, hung the transformer, got all the wiring done, all the connections done, uh, squeezed the low side neutral of the transformer down to the mainline neutral on the short takeoff. He sagged up the one-off triplex going to the service pole across the street. And, of course, timing being everything. And he just kind of had the tail of the of the low side of the transformer in one hand and the service neutral in the other with leather gloves on, no rubber gloves. Of course, it was, de- it was de-energized and dead and grounded. Well, he started to put it together. And about that time, near the takeoff pole, there was a squirrel stepped off the top of a CSP transformer onto a lightning arrestor and boom, blew that line fuse back out there on that three-phase line. Of course, now, the gentleman that was holding the line that was making that jumper up was in series with it, and basically he hollered like he'd been shot. <laughs> he just uh, screamed. And everybody went running around trying to figure out, well, we're on a dead and grounded line. Why did that happen? And basically here... The total isolation concept would have saved him all that misery and that pain. Didn't kill him or anything, but it sure did get his attention. But basically what happened, he had a voltage rise on that neutral as a result of that failed, um, that faulted primary out there and blew that, that, the lightning arrestor. Fault current went back to the main line and back to the source, but voltage goes in all directions. You know, one of those old sayings, the old wise tale, it ain't dead till it's grounded. Well, for once, uh, one thing, dead, the word dead, D-E-A-D, is never found in a regulation. It's either de-energized or energized. But also, another one that says electricity will take the path of least resistance. At least that's what they told me back in the 60s when I went to work. I said, no, it don't. Electricity takes any and all conductive paths. And the path of the least resistance will have the path of the greater current flow until Ohm's law, running voltage through a resistor, knocks the voltage down to a point to where it doesn't, it's, it's not harmful to you. So, you know, in this case, he was close enough to that faulted arrestor. The voltage rise going both ways on that neutral basically got because his, this neutral on this takeoff was still tapped up. Had he isolated the neutral jumper along with the primary jumper and then shunted them out or shorted them out and get them at, you know, basically parallel and redundant, uh, probably wouldn't have felt nothing. Or, here's another thought for you, had that takeoff been eight or ten spans away from the faulted lightning arrestor, you would have had enough poles on a multi-grounded Y system to where the voltage would have dropped enough to where he may not even known it. Of all the times I've ever hooked up a service on a cut-in truck or a service truck running a temporary service or anything else, I never gave it a thought about stray voltage of of a fault or a nearby fault being hazardous to me while I was in series between the mainline neutral and whatever I was hooking up. Never did happen to me, but it happened to him. (laughs) Now then... The the uh, the second uh, illustration I want to talk about was on underground, and this is the greatest conversations I have now with uh, direct buried underground conductors. You know, if you got cross-linked polyethylene or oconite, whatever you got with a concentric neutral or an LC shield, it doesn't matter. 
if you've got a underground primaries in a loop, somewhere in a loop, you, you, you're dealing with two different issues and two different hazardous possibilities when you're splicing a cable. Say you got a faulted cable in a, in a one-off primary loop, and basically somebody goes out there and switches it out between pad three and four, and you got it isolated, close the normal open port, refuse it, get all the lights back on. All you've got is one section of cable that's switched out. Well, it's commonplace, you know, to go in there and check for the absence of voltage, pull the grounds off of the the uh, the the primary, off, pull the elbow off and put it on feed through, and then thump it or either put on a fault locator of some kind, find the fault, and then go dig it up and fix it. That was the way I did it for years. Well, when we got to the faulty cable, the faulted location, first thing you're going to do is what? You're going to cut the rest of the bad cable out of the way and maybe get a, a long splice and put it back together or a splice, get a piece of cable and put it in there. If it's been cut, say a backhoe or something, you may have to have two splices. Well, here's hazard number one is return neutral currents. You, you can always have return neutral currents from a high, highly inductive load, motor load, if you're in an industrial or commercial complex, you always have some current flowing in neutral. You can get a series with it. But in this case here, the two cases that we ran up on were on two different companies, uh, local companies to me here in the state of Georgia. And basically one of them was a result of a nearby fault near the riser pole because he was in like the first or second span from the riser pole. And he basically was got in series with the primary conductor putting this, the connector together, getting ready to splice it and put the housing back on, back on it. And there was a fault at the riser pole where it rose, the voltage rose on the neutral. Because now then that former primary cable that is now grounded to the neutral on both sides is now it's a parallel and not redundant neutral path. So the voltage rose on it and he got in series with it and he got a severe shock. The other one, same situation, but a little bit further back in the loop, doesn't matter because they had a lightning strike nearby and it almost it almost took him out. Now, had he basically got to those two transformer locations and once he followed exactly what it says right here in N2, if he isolated like paragraph M requires, check for the presence, absence of voltage, and then isolates in grounds and then takes the ground off, and then he he makes that cable safe to where, like some people wrap it in a blanket, to where it can't touch anything else and then cut the neutral, concentric neutral, off of your ring bus in your transformer and isolate it to where it's not touching anything on both transformers. Now then, basically, it, you are isolated. System voltage faults on neutrals can rise, but you'll never see it on just on that piece of cable. That was a project with SMO back in about 2002, if I recall to where they actually wrote an article on how to safely isolate underground cables to make repairs on those underground cables and do it safely without subjecting yourself to hazardous difference of electric potential.
Well, I guess uh, the two stories I hope illustrate why what I wrote that article on and why I wrote it that way, even though a lot of people say, oh, no, we're going to stay bracket grounding. Well, if you do, just remember this. <laughs> You've got to uh, defend the reasoning of how you chose to ground. And uh, it's a 5A1 general duty clause. If you got it grounded, they're going to they're cite you on basically an N, a paragraph N violation, an N3 violation. Because you got it grounded. But knowing that you could have the return neutral currents on load or either nearby fault and rising voltages on neutral conductors, uh, now then, if you realize that and understand the possibility of that, you got to defend that position. So, you know, stay safe out there. That's what I want, you know, regardless of what it takes. It may be different than the way I did it for years and years. And I'm sure it's probably different than some that folks are doing it today. But the fact of the matter is, science and physics hadn't changed since Ben flew the kite. Uh, it's going to be there. It can be there. Not always there. But if it is, it could hurt somebody. And that's what we have to protect our employees from. Well, I've had my 20 minutes or so, and I think it's time for me to, to say goodbye for the time being. I wanted to share that story with you and talk about that article a little bit. Go read the article, and if you have any questions, my contact information's in there. Be glad to discuss it and give you much more details than I can right now on the, on the podcast. But it's been a good time. Uh, it's good to, I, I wish I could see you, but I can't. But maybe you can let me know you did see me. <laughs> Be safe out there. Take care. God bless, and we'll see you next time. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Utility Business Media and its employees. It is strongly recommended that you discuss any actions or policy changes with your company management prior to implementation.